Woe is me. Book One of the Horror Wars. Chapter 13 The Compound. Let's have a little talk, shall we? Dr. Vivian's professional voice attempted kindness for the first time in days. Lacey looked at her with bruised eyes. She still lay pinned on the table in the bright examination room, but she no longer shivered. She lay listlessly on her back, the corners of her bones sticking out at hip and shoulder, her starved ribs fanning out. She hung inert in the Velcro straps. Lacey was nearly done. Her faint breath shuddered in her chest. They had taken her apart so many times she had lost count. But her green blood had always put her back together, the worms of her flesh crawling toward each other and knitting together in slithering sheets. She was a bad memory of herself, a bitter, fading aftertaste of who Lacey used to be. And now the doctor wanted to talk. But Lacey had no more words left. She had screamed them all out. You see, we don't have anyone here like you. This isn't a very large facility. We only have 19 subjects on site, and our containment unit only holds a dozen goblins and two trolls. So the staff here is small. Nobody pays much attention to us, unless... Dr. Vivian tapped her pen against the notebook in her lap, then leaned forward and tapped it against Lacey's temple. There's a big storm coming, you know. The weather service says there's a 68% chance of a maelstrom. We don't have much time here today, maybe for the next few days. You should help me now, before we lose track of what we've accomplished so far. Why don't you tell me about the troll inside you? But Lacey didn't hear the question. Seth's voice echoed in her memory instead. So what happens during maelstroms? The lightning all hits you? Every monster in like a ten-mile radius just dogpiles you? Another maelstrom was coming, and the monsters were all coming for her. She knew it deep in her bones. Panic prickled once more at her skin after she'd thought she had no more panic in her. So what's it like? Is the troll in your brain? Of course it is. We've scanned you and found some questionable areas, both in the structure of your brain and in the glands and organs of your chest, but nothing conclusively inhuman. Are you inhuman, or are you still just an innocent little girl? I'm a girl, Lacey whispered, hearing her own voice from a distance. And why would you think that? Dr. Vivian's pen scratched in her notebook. Because I am. I am. I haven't changed, really, Lacey said, her voice still empty. I woke up from being preached exactly the same as I was before. I swear, there, there's nobody inside my head here with me. I see, Dr. Vivian said, taking more notes. And do you always believe this? Or does the troll blood announce itself from time to time in any way to you? Lacey fell silent. 
She didn't want to tell Dr. Vivian about any of the other abilities she'd gained. That would only lead to more testing, more suffering. She shook her head no, but Dr. Vivian squinted her eyes and pursed her lips in disbelief. We'll see about that, Dr. Vivian said. Your type is rare, but not that rare. We've studied troll breaches like you before. We know some of the things you can do, but you don't want to tell me about them. Perhaps the troll is keeping you from speaking. No, the word burst out of Lacey. Then you should talk to me, Dr. Vivian's voice rapped out, echoing painfully from the walls. She immediately softened her tone and tried smiling again, the corners of her wrinkled mouth tugging wide, revealing brown teeth. You should trust me, young lady. If you are a human girl, then we are on the same side. Your cooperation is utterly necessary if you'd like to prove to me who you are. Only a troll would hide its secrets. A young lady would always be helpful. Lacey hesitated, trapped. She felt acutely the parts of her body that would be dissected if she told Dr. Vivian about them. I... well, I can see in the dark now. She immediately regretted that as she said it. No, I mean... They'd removed her right eye before, the one that turned to black from time to time but it had grown back just the same. Now they'd remove both. I mean, it's in my mind. My eyes are normal. Don't touch my eyes. It's just that when it's dark, I can still see where I'm going. Interesting, but not quite interesting enough. Two years ago, we might have been able to get a DARPA grant out of that, but there's been too much work in night vision lately. Too many failures, Dr. Vivian murmured, writing her notes. What else do you have for me? Any mental powers of any kind. Tremendous physical strength. Lacey weakly shook her head. Please, no. I've got nothing. Nothing left for you. I swear. If you cut me open again, she said in a small voice, I think it'll be the end. I think... I think I'll just unravel completely. Really, Dr. Vivian said. She stood and put her notebook aside. She picked up a scalpel and parted Lacey's hospital gown. She sliced all the way down the girl's sternum, from throat to solar plexus. Lacey groaned in agony. Dr. Vivian eagerly watched as green blood leaked weakly from the incision. It reached for itself across the gap and slowly tugged the skin back closed. Lacey's groans subsided. She began to shiver. Why, you little liar, the doctor muttered, putting the scalpel down and opening her notebook again. Water, Lacey begged. Dr. Vivian frowned. Water? Why? It would be a waste. Unless you can give me a reason why we should extend this session. Please, I'm dying of thirst. No, we've already tried that, Dr. Vivian said absently. What do you want me to tell you? Lacey hissed, willing to say anything for a drink. What do I want you to tell me? What do I want? Dr. Vivian suddenly grabbed Lacey by her shoulders and shook her, the back of Lacey's skull banging against the metal table. I want you to save my career. I want you to tell me something that makes me a hero and saves me from this obscurity. Tell me what you know. Anything. Tell me what the world looks like where the trolls come from. Tell me why they're here. Tell me who rules them. Does anyone rule them? What are they working toward? What do they want? We know nothing. Nothing. She shook Lacey with both hands. Tell me. 
Tell me what you know so I can finally get out of here and go back to Virginia before the whole world is lost. Lacey watched the doctor's scowling lips and trembling eyelids. She saw how hastily applied the old woman's eyeliner was, the way foundation cracked in the wrinkles of her skin. It looked like a mask. Lacey laughed weakly at her. The trolls! All I can tell you about the trolls! Her head wobbled forward and she glared at the old woman. They're just... Dr. Vivian leaned in, pen poised against paper. Hungry. Dr. Vivian leaned back with a scowl and slapped her notebook closed. Hungry, eh? You think that's funny? This interview is over. She leaned over Lacey in anger. You can't hide in there, troll. You can't hide what you know. Not from me. You think I can't hurt you, young lady? Oh, I can hurt you. I suggest you reconsider your position while I prepare our next round of experiments. Would you like to hear about them? Would you? Lacey pressed her mouth in a line and turned her head. I think it's time to try fire. Let's see what happens when this troll burns. Dr. Vivian marched from the room and slammed the door behind her. Lacey took a huge shuddering breath, letting the pain in her chest distract her. The incision was already going numb. In an hour she'd be healed again, even faster if she had some water. Her thirst burned her. She took another breath and let the wild panic blow through her. The core of her somehow remained untouched. She observed, she calculated and strategized, even when there were no elements to her strategy apart from Velcro straps, a metal table, and bright lights in a bare room. She waited. But now she had no more strategy left. She was faded as a ghost. The door opened and the orderly entered. His bulk filled the door. He looked into the hallway, then softly closed the door behind himself. It was Keith again, the worst of them. The others didn't holler around like a bag of sand, but he always handled her with careless brutality, like he enjoyed the sound of her bones hitting the floor. Storm's here, he said in his thick voice. Hear it. They listened to the rain drumming on a distant roof. Even this windowless room wasn't entirely removed from the storm's fury. Keith moved in close, his onion breath in her face. Doc wants me to take you to the basement, but we ain't gonna make it, are we? Maelstrom will hit any minute now. A big one. Sorry, Doc. We never made it that far. The Maelstrom caught us, so we waited it out here. And when the power went out, that camera went off. He picked up one of Dr. Vivian's pens from the tray. And when it turned dark... I broke your fingers like this, he snapped the pen in half, and I broke your legs and cut out your heart, and they never even knew, because with a troll like you, everything grew back and never even left a mark. The ever-present buzzing in Lacey's head rose in unbearable volume, almost drowning out his words. She shook her head, Afflicted both within and without, now there was nowhere left to hide. Her will collapsed. Burn me, she hissed. Burn me instead. Oh, no. No way. 
I've been waiting too long for this, he laughed, his hands reaching for her. As if on cue, the power in the complex cut out. Distant yells echoed along the hall outside the door, mixed with the screeching and roaring of the monsters the compound held. The maelstrom, Keith gloated in the dark. Oh, this is going to be a big one. An unharmonic rumble shook the walls, and nausea washed through her. The lightning slithered closer. Even down here they could hear it. They could feel it. A single crack rattled the whole building, and Keith grunted, falling to the ground. Lacey's insides dropped sickeningly away. The heavy drumming of the maelstrom's black rain trembled the entire building. She sensed a rising clamor of monsters from every direction surrounding the compound. So many voices, so much need, all directed at her. A lighter flame flickered in the dark room. Keith heaved himself up from the ground, retching. After a long moment, he held up a fat white candle with shaking hands. He lit it and put it on the doctor's tray. Awful. So bad. So horrible. He retched again. We're all of us monsters, aren't we? He leered in a horrible voice, wiping spittle from his square chin and grabbing Dr. Vivian's scalpel. Now, Keith finally gets to play. The door behind him swung suddenly open, and a dark shape tumbled within. What the? Keith asked, turning to the door. What is that? He screeched. Limbs sprung up from the floor in a blur, reaching for him, wrapping around his head with a wet sound. It's a phantom. Lacey whispered. Keith began to shout. The monster covered his head in bulking cords of muscle. Its fur shimmered dreadfully in the candlelight. Keith spun awkwardly back and forth, trying to gain purchase, but the phantom's limbs locked tight against him like a python squeezing its prey to death. He couldn't get his fingers beneath. Keith crashed around the room. He rammed into the tray and the burning candle rolled into a corner, quickly igniting the veneer of a cabinet, covering it with a weak sheet of blue flame. Keith thrashed, his voice a muffled bellow, his hands tearing uselessly at the phantom's limbs. He fell into one corner, then another, finally crashing against the burning cabinet. As soon as the flame touched it, the phantom's fur ignited. Keith clawed his way to his feet one last time. A piercing, high-pitched wail filled the room. The phantom spasmed, now little more than a flaming torch on Keith's head, and constricted its limbs. With a grunt, the man's skull split and his body convulsed. He sagged onto the floor, the phantom dying as it killed him, blackened limbs arching back like a spider. The room filled with smoke. Lacey watched the phantom burn, the limbs turning to gray ash and collapsing. The flames began to climb from the cabinet to the walls filling the corner. Not by monster, then, she said in a quiet voice, but by flame. She closed her eyes, hoping for a quick end. She would finally get to die in peace. A kick flung the door open again. Captain Monroe rushed in from the hall. He covered his mouth and nose with his arm. Lacey, get you out of here, he shouted as the flames began to crackle. The smoke billowed upward, filling the ceiling. No, no, you can't, Lacey protested weakly. Leave me. Captain Monroe struggled with the Velcro bands, tearing at them with his hands. Never should have left you behind in the first place! He picked her frail body up and held her close. Her useless arms hung crossed between her legs, her head lolled against his chest. 
He took her out to the hallway and put her gently down on the cold white tile. She kept repeating, No, run, get away, go, they're coming from me, run! Captain Monroe stepped back into the burning room. What do you mean they're coming for you? He shouted over the rising fire. Who is? She heaved breath into her lungs to speak over the growing flames. All the monsters, they're after me. They know I'm here. It's me they want. Leave me, leave me, and save yourself, and just go. The words came out in panic squeals, echoing down the hallway. Captain Monroe returned holding the contents of Keith's pockets. He dropped everything but a pocket knife and a ring of keys on the ground. Barefoot and wrapped in his hospital gown, he looked frantically through the keys. You mean more are coming? Yes, Lacey sobbed. There must be. The whole maelstrom. All the monsters are coming here. You gotta go. I can't leave you, Captain Monroe shouted, finding the key he sought. I can't leave anybody. He hurried from door to door down the hallway, unlocking ten on each side and swinging them wide. He went through one more door, a storeroom, and came out with a mop bucket on wheels full of aerosol cans. Across the hall from Lacey, an old man hobbled out his open door. His harrowed face contained an almost religious wonder. A pale streak of gray slashed one cheek, and a goblin's fang hung over his bottom lip. He saw something in the open room beside her. He moved painfully past her within, his narrow legs purple with bruises and welts. A moment later, he emerged with a dark, diminutive Mexican woman with spiky, inhuman hair. The woman blinked and then looked down at Lacey and her breath hissed in surprise. She crouched beside Lacey and put a shaking hand on her shoulder. Chew, I have dreams, the woman husked in a thick accent. I have dreams about you, Roladita. Bad dreams. You and the great shining face of fire. I see it all the time, muy malo. I wish I could help you, pobrecita. She squeezed Lacey's shoulder and looked at her with abused, dark eyes. She and the old man helped the other breached test subjects out of their rooms as Captain Monroe ducked back into Lacey's burning room with the mop. Others emerged from their doors, most crawling. They wept and moaned, claws and hands covering their distorted and tortured faces. One little goblin man, his robe nearly shredded, lunged clumsily into the hall and dropped to the ground. Dirty, green-stained bandages wrapped his limbs. From his shoulders to the top of his head, he was nearly entirely a goblin. Only remnants of the man's face remained, elongated and flattened with a broad snout, but his pale legs kicking on the tiles were human. Another escapee, a heavy-set woman with scared eyes, leaned down to offer the fallen goblin man a hand. A hiss escaped his lips, and he began crawling malevolently toward her. The woman whimpered and backed down the hall. The woman stumbled over Lacey's inert legs and fell heavily against the wall. The goblin man crawled closer, leering at them both. Lacey screamed, too weakly to be heard over the building roar of the fire and the moans of the release test subjects. The goblin man swiveled his gaze at her, and his nose twitched. It recognized who she was, what she was. It screeched. Captain Monroe ran out of the burning room, the mop's head on fire. With a shout, he swatted the goblin man away, igniting its arm. It shrieked and fell into the room behind them, where the Mexican woman had been held. Captain Monroe hurried after it, pushing the burning mop against the ground, his face a horrified scowl. Lacey couldn't turn her head, nor did she want to. 
the sounds of the awful thing dying as fire consumed it, the shrieks and screams, its heels drumming against the floor, would haunt her dreams forever. Then Lacey saw that many of the doors remained open, but nobody had emerged. She couldn't begin to imagine what horrors waited behind those doors. Hold this, Captain Monroe told the old man, who gripped the burning mop like a mad prophet and waved it in the air. Captain Monroe shoveled the cans out of the mop bucket and tore the attached ringer off. He collected Lacey and placed her gently inside, dropping the aerosol cans on her lap. Thanks, he said to the old man, taking the mop back, black smoke rising from its burning strands. Fire now filled the room Lacey had occupied. Smoke rolled along the hallway's ceiling. Soon the entire floor would be on fire. Get out now, sir. Get out while you still can. The old man just watched him, gaping, as Captain Monroe pushed Lacey in the mop bucket down the hall like it was a makeshift wheelchair. Lacey held her head up with effort and looked down the hallway ahead. Smoke hazed the distance, but she saw a shadow swing low toward them. A phantom, she called, her voice hoarse in the rattling hall. On the ground! Captain Monroe swung the mop bucket behind him as the phantom approached. I can almost see it, he growled. In the smoke! He swept the burning mop low across the hallway floor and the phantom recoiled. Lacey saw it skitter back. Lost it! Where is it? Captain Monroe shouted. Back a few steps, Lacey cried. Need one of these, Captain Monroe said, turning quickly and grabbing a can of Lysol off her lap. He knocked its plastic lid off and aimed it down the hall, just as the phantom coiled itself and sprung. A spreading jet shot through the fire of the mop, making a roaring fireball that covered the hall. Captain Monroe fired three quick, waving bursts of it, making sure to reach all the corners. When he stopped, they saw the phantom lying on its back on the floor, burning hot, its limbs arching back in death. Okay, come on, you tell me if you see any more. He pushed the mop bucket through an opening covered in a giant glass skylight where a broad stairwell descended, its long wooden banister overlooking an atrium below with a planter and attached lobby. Lacey saw that it was daytime, the black clouds of the departing maelstrom leaving a gray sky above, lit weakly by the sun. Captain Monroe pushed the mop bucket across the atrium toward the stairwell and suddenly grunted. He pushed the bucket away from him and Lacey spun wide. A phantom had snuck up from behind and snared Captain Monroe by the ankle. It started swarming up his leg. He mashed the burning mop head onto it and it squealed as it climbed him, its claws scoring his skin. His robe lit on fire as another leapt on his back. He rolled on the floor, the second phantom reaching for his neck. The phantom climbing up him shuddered with sheets of flame and died. It ignited both the phantom on his back and his robe. He crashed against the walls and dragged the phantom off his back and hurled it down the stairs. He threw himself on the ground again, rolling on the floor to smother the flames. Finally they went out. He rolled onto his back and groaned in pain. When he stood, his hands were raw and cracked. His face was a grimace, and his burnt robe barely covered his dark body. He took a few shaking breaths and then looked at her, blisters already beginning to rise on his skin. This is no way to fight, is it? He managed in a rough voice, pushing the mop bucket to the stairs. The blast of a shotgun echoed from the lobby below. Glass shattered, and the howling glee of goblins filled the building. Oh, Lacey said. We're too late. But her legs were just starting to flex. If she could only have a few more minutes, she might even be able to stand. She might even be able to run. 
She couldn't have Captain Monroe carry her down these stairs. His hands were already full. She willed her heavy, numb hand to lift her lifeless leg. With a grunt, she heaved it over the edge of the mop bucket, and it dragged on the ground. Lacey, you gotta stay in the bucket. We're heading right for it. Right for all of them. I can't stay in the bucket. You need me on my feet. The shotgun blasts grew louder. Men shouted in alarm below as the gabbling monsters pursued them. Lacey hauled herself up to look over the banister, her legs trembling from supporting just a fraction of her weight. She saw orderlies in white, black shotguns looking out of place in their arms. They fired and retreated, disappearing beneath her. The gabble grew louder. Then she saw them. A sea of dark green and black. An entire wave of goblins pursued the orderlies, filling the floor. The men screamed as they fell back, where they were surrounded and their shots could no longer hold the goblin spears back. Captain Monroe knelt, sawing at the burning strands of the mop with the pocket knife. He wrapped the strands around an aerosol can, cursing as they burned his fingers even more, and stood. Hey! he shouted in a piercing voice that had a bit of the goblin in it. Scores of green faces below looked up at him. With a shout, he hurled the flame-wrapped can down into their midst. The result was underwhelming. The can bounced down among them, causing the nearest goblins to scream and run. It rolled across the tiles, parting the goblins, barely smoking. The can rolled against one goblin's foot, and its flesh caught on fire, the flames racing up its leg. It screeched and turned on the burning can, hacking at it again and again with its spear. Boom! The fireball knocked all the goblins Lacey could see from their feet. Flames swept through them like a grass fire, igniting those farther away. Several regained their feet, and they stood, shuddering with orange flame and greasy smoke, the entire lobby filled with the squeals of dying monsters and a sour black cloud. Only a few goblins on the edges survived. Come on! Captain Monroe reached for her, but Lacey was already dragging herself to the stairs. She knew this was their only chance to flee the monsters and the bureau and the fire or die here, caught between them all. Lacey willed life into her legs, clutching the handrail. She rolled forward to get her knees under her, and with a forceful hissing breath, pressed her feet down and her body up. She swayed. Captain Monroe stepped past her, holding the burning mop. He kicked the mop bucket down the stairs, and cans rolled down after it. Lacey took the steps as quickly as she could, her legs sagging under each downward step. She held onto the handrail for dear life and squeezed her eyes shut. At the bottom of the stairs, Captain Monroe cursed and waved the burning mop at the remaining goblins. Greasy black ash covered nearly every surface, including the two dead bodies of orderlies. Captain Monroe hurried to them and pulled the shotguns from their grasps, collecting shells with his swollen, fumbling hands. The goblins waited for the smoke to clear before charging raggedly at them. The first emboldened the rest. It leveled its spear and came at them low and fast, its hinged jaw gaping, needle fangs out. Captain Monroe shot it back against the wall, its body landing diagonally across the white surface like a splattered fly. A knot of five more goblins followed. He tossed an aerosol can at their feet and shot it instead. Boom! All five goblins died in a fireball, limbs pinwheeling through the smoke. Only three more remained, lurking at the edges of the lobby, drawn to Lacey but wary of the fire. Wisps of smoke seeped from the ceiling and rolled down the stairs behind them. The entire top floor must be on fire now. Lacey hoped the other test subjects had escaped a different way, 
Maybe there was a back staircase somewhere. An eerie, deep voice rolled through the smoke from the shattered front entrance. It was a voice they both recognized. That's an ogre, Captain Monroe shouted. I know, you gotta shoot it in the eye, Lacey cried out. She thought about retreating up the stairs, but heat poured down from above, and flickering orange light played through the rolling wall of smoke. The ceiling cracked, and an entire burning sheet of wood fell to the ground beside the lobby entrance. The ogre rumbled, recoiling from the flame, and passed it, stepping low to fit into the building. The ogre loomed fourteen feet tall, its head near the vaulted ceiling, little more than a dark shape in the lurid firelight and smoke. It lunged forward, and a great scraping crash followed it. The ogre pulled a black sedan into the lobby after it, a pair of people within, frantic with terror. The goblins screeched and threw themselves forward. Bang! 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 Captain Monroe shot all three down, the last goblin getting almost close enough to die at his feet. Now only the ogre remained. It roared its subsonic roar at them, vibrating their bones. Captain Monroe reloaded his shotgun and tossed three cans at the ogre's feet. He shot at them, missed, then took more careful aim and shot again. Boom! Ba-boom! The trio of explosions each outdid the last, and the ogre stumbled in the fire and smoke. But when it cleared, the ogre appeared unharmed. It howled in its unbearable deep voice and hurled the car through the lobby at them. Captain Monroe fell back to the stairs with Lacey as the black sedan hit the far side against the planters. The entire stairwell shuddered. The windows in the sedan shattered and the people inside the car rocked violent sideways and went still. The ogre lumbered forward. The unbearable heat of the fire beat against Lacey's back. The smoke poured past her like a river. She could barely breathe. The ogre shambled through the growing flames, the oversized Easter Island mask of its face leering at her, the rictus of its mouth wide with terror at being so close to the fire. But it needed to take her first. It needed to pop her into its mouth and... Lacey's nearly telepathic link with the ogre suddenly snapped as the top floor above its head roared with fire and the ceiling collapsed to the lobby floor. The ogre disappeared under a raging pile of debris that pinned the giant monster to the ground. But now Captain Monroe and Lacey were surrounded by fire. The stairs behind them were about to burn down, the lobby was on fire nearly everywhere, and the collapsed ceiling that trapped the ogre also blocked their escape. Captain Monroe tried to find a way through the fire, but the heat kept chasing him back to the base of the stairs. There was no way out. They fell against the stairs, choking, gasping for air. The wall of fire ahead of them suddenly flickered with shadow. An impossible apparition stepped unharmed through the flames. As tall as a woman, hunched, with black hair as stiff as straw and a jutting chin, a witch emerged from the fire. No! No! Captain Monroe gasped, dropping the useless shotgun, his hand reaching for Lacey. The witch held up its clawed hand, its ragged robe sleeve falling back to knobby elbow. It spoke a word they couldn't hear, and a whirling spot of darkness the size of a baseball coalesced above its palm. In sharp relief against the wall of fire behind it, the spot of darkness grew in size as the witch cocked its arm back. Lacey didn't care what that darkness would bring. Her survival instinct was gone now. She was about to burn. But she didn't care. She didn't care. 
The witch hurled the ball of darkness, and it hit Lacey right between the eyes. Chapter 14 The Fog I'm under these pines, wishing they were palm trees, wasting my rhymes out here as an MC, hating, relating to the mountains and the valleys. I'm saying, I'm praying to every god, please, that I'm going, going back, back to Cali, Cali. Seth stopped on the trail ahead of Mac and clapped his hands, planting his feet wide and busting a move. The tin cup tied to the top of his backpack swayed back and forth on its line. Robin ahead guffawed at him. Come on, Seth, stop lagging. Mac leaned into the climb, the rocks falling away under his feet, if he wasn't careful how he stepped on them. I wish Bunny was here. The shepherd had learned to walk behind him, keeping an eye on his back. Mac felt vulnerable without her, but the others had told him she couldn't follow where they were going today. She had to stay with Ruby guarding the house. So I gotta watch my own back instead. All right, soldiers, Randy said from the top of a rock pile where it spread down from the cliff face. No, not soldiers. We're not old enough to be soldiers, remember? Seth interrupted. We're just a puny bunch of scouts. Okay, scouts then. Listen up, Mac. This is how we do things on Spire Ranch. The maelstrom hit us really hard, but we can't just hide in the house anymore playing defense. There's too much happening out here. We got whole forests to protect, but we're scouts. Seth's right. We ain't soldiers yet. So, show me your primary weapon. Robin snorted. That sounds dirty. They all snickered and Mac blushed. He pulled the hammer from his belt and held it up. No, that is not a scout's primary weapon. Even Seth stopped laughing at Mac to listen to Randy's sing-song sergeant cadence. This is a scout's primary weapon. Randy held up his walkie-talkie. Wyatt and Ed and Gus need detailed reports. What's coming? How many? From where? They need us to find the monsters before the monsters find them, got it? Now, show me your secondary weapon. Mac frowned, puzzled, then held up the hammer again. Randy laughed and shook his head. Seth yanked on the binoculars around Mac's neck, getting the point. No, these, you dummy. Right, Seth, we're the eyes and ears. We're not the soldiers, okay? We hide and we spy and we call in what we see. We don't kill unless our lives depend on it. But don't worry, it's not all lame. There are still some fun things we get to do, and climbing mountains is one of them. See, up there above the trees, we don't have to worry about being attacked. Monsters don't like staying up on peaks and ridges for whatever reason, probably because they want to be down below hunting us. Even if the lightning drops a squad of goblins right on top of a cliff, first thing they do is run off it. So the peaks are clear now. And from up there, we see a lot of their movement, right? So up we go. Randy approached the cliff face beside them. A seam ran down the dark, pitted volcanic rock. He reached up and grabbed a handhold within, pulling himself onto the cliff. His feet found easy purchase in the seam, and he climbed quickly upward. Why don't you just... Max started, and they all looked at him with immediate skepticism of anything he might ask. I mean, this is stupid, Mac muttered, dropping his eyes. Why don't we just get a chopper to search the ranch instead? Then they could see, like, everywhere... Seth let out an explosive sigh and shook his head in disbelief. Yeah, Randall, dude, what were you thinking bringing us out here on foot like this? Mac has a brilliant idea. I can't believe you never thought of it. Why don't you just get a chopper, you absolute moron? He looked up the volcanic face, wedged his foot in a seam, and levered himself up onto the cliff wall. Yeah, great idea. 
But choppers ain't allowed, Mac, for anyone but the Nash Guard, Randy called down to them. Really? Oh, I mean, I knew that was true down there in civilization and all, but you can't even get a chopper out here on the ranch? I thought there were, like, special rules for people out here. You can use weapons they don't allow in town. You can't use choppers, too? Nope. Nobody can. Nowhere. They're restricted, Randy answered. All the really good stuff's restricted. Seth stopped and looked down at them. Oh, blimey, yes. I've got a list. You wouldn't believe how weak they want to keep us. We can't have rockets or explosive rounds bigger than a 50 cal. We can't have armor. We can't have airborne gun platforms. I mean, do they just want us to die out here? Randy called out from above. Right. So the only way we can get the ranch scanned with choppers is if we work with the Bureau again. And you saw how that worked out last time. Yeah, uh, no thanks. So we have to do this the old-fashioned way. On foot, in the middle of the woods, with walkie-talkies and binoculars. Randy gave his roguish smile to Mac and disappeared over the top of the cliff. Mac looked up the cliff. It seemed to go up a hundred feet before he lost sight of the top. Uh, he glanced anxiously at Robin. You catch me if I fall? Robin laughed again. Ha! No way! Mac faced the cliff. He remembered the gap he ascended when he was running away from Agent Roke. It somehow seemed less scary than this. Here on the exposed cliff face, a stray gust of wind might just pick him up and blow him away like a leaf. Mac took a deep breath and wiped his sweaty palms on his jeans and wedged a sneaker into the seam. He was glad to feel what a tight fit it was. Maybe he could do this after all. He took another step, finding fractures inside the seam to grip with his hands. He took another step and then another, finding the way up easier than expected. Wow, this is fun. I'm like Spider-Man. He saw a piece of bent rebar sticking out of a crack above. He pulled himself up to it, finding it solid. He found another, then another. Someone had made this a much easier climb. But his legs started to burn, especially lifting the extra 20 pounds he carried in his backpack. He began to sweat and take deep, panting breaths. Gravity pulled at him, making him heavy. Finally, the top edge curved away and flattened out. Mac stepped up onto the ridgeline with Seth and Randy. Robin appeared a moment later, not even breathing hard. They surveyed the vista on the far side of the canyon they had just climbed. It was a maze of more canyons below, rumpled, tree-covered ridges lower than the one they stood on. The sun climbed the sky on the far side of the vista, where the canyons finally ran out into a wide, flat valley. At its other hazy end, the folds of the land stacked into a snarled mess, rising almost up to the level of the ridge they occupied. Okay, Mac, Randy said. Point back to the ranch house. Mac circled, looking back the way they had come. He recalled so many twists and turns he had lost count. He guessed, pointing at a diagonal from the canyon they had climbed. Randy winced. Well, sort of. Look, we came from the north, right? We've been heading due south. Can you point due north? Robin and Seth snickered again. Mac scowled at them. He faced the sun, looking at where it stood in the sky. It was about 9.30 in the morning on a day of overcast clouds in a hazy sky. Mac knew the sun rose in the east, so he traced its path back to the horizon from where it had emerged. Then he turned and faced the opposite direction. That was where the sun would set, west, and halfway between those two cardinal points on the horizon was north. But which way? He visualized a map of the United States. West was California, so if he was facing west, north would be to his right. 
Mac turned right and pointed at the midpoint of the horizon. That's north, he said with certainty. Yeah, well, no, Randy said. I mean, close, but not close enough. See, it's already mid-September, and we're pretty far north here, so you didn't adjust for that. The sun rises in more like east by southeast these days and sets west by southwest. It doesn't divide the sky in half like it does on the equator. So you can still estimate with the sun, just bring it over like 20 degrees. North is there. We left from the ranch down there and walked that way, then back this way, then over that saddle, and down into that canyon, and up here, remember? Uh, most of it, Max said. Randy spoke into the walkie-talkie. Wyatt, you down there? After a moment, Wyatt's crackling voice responded. Ah, good. Y'all in position up there yet, Randall? Yeah, safe and sound, Randy replied sourly. He wore a small backpack, so filthy it was almost black, with a strung bow diagonal across his chest and a quiver at his hip. On his other hip, he wore a long knife, a child-sized baseball bat hanging next to it. He looked dangerous, his dark, wavy hair tied back with a leather thong, red flannel shirt flapping in the wind, defying any monster within a hundred miles to see him. Wyatt's voice crackled. Good. You see us yet? Randy asked the other scouts. Anybody see him? Mac put the binoculars to his eyes and rolled the dial until the land below came into quivering focus. He scanned back and forth, seeing nothing but bare, dark, brown trunks and sheaves of green. There they are, Robin said, lowering her glasses and pointing way across the valley to a much lower ridge. Like eleven o'clock, just an inch or so outside those trees in a bare patch, below that spot that looks like crooked teeth. Mac peered along the ridgeline, seeing the boulders jutting upwards like an ogre's tusks. Then he slowly scanned down the slope till he saw the three men standing among the yellow grasses, waving their rifles back at the scouts. Okay, we got you, Randy said in the walkie-talkie. Now get back under cover before anybody else does. Oh, we already cleared out the area, Wyatt said. You couldn't hear our shots? No, not from the far side of the ridge, Randy answered. Well, we've been busy with... Wyatt's voice crackled and cut out, returning a moment later. Fifteen goblins in the first squad and seven goblins in the second squad, and then we hardly had any time to reload before a full dozen of those super goblins we saw last week tried to ambush us. Hobgoblins, Seth interrupted, speaking into his walkie-talkie. Gotta be called hobgoblins. Best name for them. Although I will also accept uber goblins, snob goblins, and what about bob goblins? I love that movie. Their radios crackled, interrupting Randy. Wyatt's urgent voice said, Okay, we got a big troop of goblins coming at us from the southeast. Can you see them? Let us know where their back line is and Ed can... The crackle of their distant gunfire drowned out the rest of his words. I can't see who they're shooting at, Randy said. Can anyone... No, Max said, seeing nothing but the men running into and out of the forest edge as they set themselves up for different shots. The forest itself was impenetrable, shades of dark green flickering in the wind. He can't, Seth breathed, his binoculars angled down left. Wyatt, you got a whole other horde coming up behind you across that meadow. Oh my God, look at them all, Randy said. Then he reported, I see two, no, three ogres. I can't even count the trolls and so many goblins. But the gunfire crackled without interruption. Can you hear me? Coming up the slope behind you. Behind you, Wyatt, the northwest. His voice cracked with urgency. 
Mac raised his glasses to find Wyatt and Ed and Gus out of the forest, their backs to the meadow, their gunfire too loud to hear the broadcast warning, the horde at their back only a hundred yards away now. Wyatt! Randy shouted into his walkie-talkie. Turn! Turn around! The gunfire ended. Mac couldn't see past the men below to the goblins in the woods, but they must all be dead. Turn around! Randy screamed into his walkie-talkie. Just then the ogres bellowed and the trolls roared. The men ducked and turned low, facing the new threat. They raised their rifles and began to fire, switching to full auto, sending as many bullets across the meadow as they could. Oh my God, Mac breathed. No, no, there are too many. What are they going to do? Goblins fell, mowed down by bullets. Trolls stumbled, went down, and got back up. The ogres kept lumbering toward the men, enraged by the shots. Gus pulled on Wyatt and Ed, shouting something to them. They fell back into the woods, still firing, putting more space between the monsters and themselves. They're retreating, Randy said. Good. Tired of dying, try retreating, Seth said in a cheery announcer's voice. Not just for scouts anymore. No, Robin said. Not all of them. Gus stepped forward, his gun barking. He faced the oncoming horde alone so the others could fall back to safety. The monsters all raced toward him, a dark triangle rushing across the yellow grass. Gus fired and fired, swapping out magazines in a blur. Goblin after goblin crumpled and died. Even an ogre went down. Wow, Randy breathed. That's one, Robin said. The troll swung wide to split his fire and attack Gus from both left and right. Gus threw grenades at their feet, one then two. The trolls disappeared in flashes of light and clouds of white smoke. Wow, 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 Randy said. Look at this guy. Gus is a stud. He's got grenades, Seth complained. Since when do we got grenades? Nashgard, he brought them, Robin said. Come on, Gus, kill them all. The remaining goblins charged forward, trolls leaping out of the trees and swinging toward Gus. He dropped his empty rifle and pulled a shotgun off his back. Its booming echoes filled the canyons. Trolls flew backwards. Behind him in the woods, Wyatt and Ed kept up a crackling fusillade, further thinning the ranks of goblins and trolls. Another one of the ogres bellowed and charged Gus, brutish arms held high, but its head rocked back and it fell sideways like a tree, crashing dead against the ground. Gus scurried around the fallen ogre, keeping his field of fire open, the shotgun jumping in his hands. That's two, Robin said. Blimey, look at him go, Seth said. Gus began to advance on the monsters. He lifted a bottle and threw it at a knot of trolls whose legs had been destroyed by a grenade. Flame bloomed across their twisting limbs. He's like on a rampage. Gus tossed a second Molotov cocktail on the other trolls, shooting them as they struggled to rise. Mac watched Gus in awe. It was like the man had no fear. Or it's that death wish of his. He advanced into the teeth of the coming monsters, throwing more Molotov cocktails and firing his shotgun to the left and right. The monsters fell. He dropped the empty shotgun and took out a pistol, too busy to reload. Crack, crack, crack. The last goblins fell. Only an ogre and a few maimed trolls remained. Wyatt, you got more incoming, Robin said urgently into her walkie-talkie. Where? Wyatt asked. Max scanned the canyon through his binoculars. Bands of sun broke through the clouds and swept across the green and brown land, but he couldn't see movement anywhere. Where, Robin? From the north, Robin said. The scouts all swung their glasses to her position, down and to the right, but Max still couldn't see anything. How far out? What are they? Wyatt asked. I, I don't know, Robin rasped. 
It ain't goblins or anything. I never see nothing like it. It's like a dark cloud. Then Mac saw it. A small cloud sailed over the trees, its center nearly black, casting a shadow on the canopy. It flew in a straight line with dreadful intent, heading right for the battle. What is that? He wondered aloud. Get out of there, Gus! Randy shouted into his walkie-talkie. An ogre's too much right now, and we got something else! Gus marched right at the ogre, his pistol leveled in a two-hand grasp. The ogre lifted a huge hand to swat at him. Crack! The ogre's head snapped back, spraying green blood. The monster toppled. Bloody hell, Seth said. Headshot an ogre with a pistol. That bloke is too good. Pull back to the water, Gus ordered over his walkie-talkie in an even voice. Everybody, even you scouts up there, now! The water, Mac asked in a small voice. Is that a witch? Come on, Mac, Randy said. You heard him. Is that seriously a witch? Mac asked, his voice a squeak, his body ignoring his brain's commands to flee. Come on, Robin said, hauling him by the hand. They ran along the ridgeline to the west, toward the battle, further away from the ranch behind. Mac felt the growing distance acutely as a panic began rising in him. A witch wasn't like goblins and trolls. It wasn't even like an ogre or a phantom. Witches were truly evil. Only a handful of witches had ever been seen in California, and they always left something worse than a body count when they were done. They're like those serial killers on death row who call themselves artists. Mac looked down into the canyon at the meadow of yellow grass. He could only see a pair of trolls pulling themselves back together. The men had withdrawn into the woods. The dark cloud arrived and hovered at the edge of the canyon. What's it doing? Mac asked, imagining a witch inside the cloud at something like an aircraft's controls. Where would it fly next? The cloud began to expand instead, slowly at first, but then with greater speed, dark fog spilling down the slopes. What's it doing? He repeated, bellowing in alarm. It's filling the whole sky, Seth said, and then the cloud's dark surface rose toward them. The canyon vanished, and the fog overtopped low ridges. It rose up the mountain slopes with swooping speed. Egad, said Seth. Fall back, Randy ordered, pulling on Mac. Fall back now! But the cloud rose too quickly. The dark fog boiled up from below and swept across their legs with a chill. Before they had taken another five steps, the fog had risen above their heads, enclosing them in its gloom. This is not my favorite part, Seth said. Yeah, no, I would like to fast forward through this part, please. Okay, everybody, keep close, Randy said, his voice curiously dead in the fog. They drew together on a volcanic knob that stood off the main spine of the ridge. Don't let anyone get snatched away. Mac almost threw himself into Robin's arms when he heard that. His back itched like a malevolent gaze burned into him from behind. He whirled, then whirled again, seeing nothing but a blank wall of dark gray fog inches from his face. We gotta get down there, Seth said. That was the last thing Gus said. Randy spoke into his walkie-talkie. We're headed down to you, Wyatt. We're... He frowned and looked at the little black plastic handheld radio. He turned it off and turned it on again. Radio's dead. Yeah, big surprise, Robin growled. Okay, well then... Let's just, let's go, Randy said. Mac kept turning and turning, hearing all kinds of distant sounds that his brain couldn't identify. Clicks and moans and scrapes from every direction. When he finally processed what Randy said, the other scouts had already taken several steps without him. Mac hurried to keep up.
The only ground they could see was the knife edge of the ridge under their feet. It fell away to the left and right in the fog. Randy hesitated. They grouped around him. I think this is it. Where we go down? Yeah, it is, Robin agreed. Come on, team. Let's do this. They edged down the slope, taking tiny steps on the loose soil and gravel, heading down into the canyons below. The columns of dark tree trunks stood like sentinels looming over them, their canopies disappearing above in the shadows. Max's skin crawled. He pulled the hammer from his belt. Oh boy, oh boy, he whispered to himself. Calm down, kid, Robin said. Quite the nervous little lad, Seth added, but he also pulled a spear from the dozen he'd strapped to the side of his backpack, his pale bird-like face compressed into a grimace of fear. The fog continued to billow in, growing even more dense and opaque. They could see no more than ten feet in any direction. Randy was a dim silhouette ahead. Hold up! He whipped his bow over his head and drew an arrow from the quiver at his hip. Eyes wide and mouth pursed, he scanned the slope. Listen. In the distance below them, something zoomed like a soaring hawk, but with a rattling buzz. It faded to nothing. Then they heard it again, straight below them now, zipping from one point to another faster than a hawk could ever fly. What is that? Mac asked, his voice shaking. Doesn't sound like a witch, Seth said, his face clouding with doubt. Doesn't act like a witch either. Something new? Oh, hell, is it really something new again? Which would you prefer? Robin asked. The monsters zoomed and rattled through the air from yet another corner of the sky down below, louder now, asserting itself. This thing seemed metallic, flying an erratic, looping course through the fog at top speed. Instead of a bird, Mac imagined a gleaming black snake like a Chinese dragon, parting the fog like a sidewinder in the grass. It grew louder, then stopped abruptly again. After a few seconds of silence, they all released their held breaths. We gotta get down to Wyatt, Seth said. Like right now. Yeah, but it's between us and them. Randy took a step back. Robin, I need you on point. You can get us off this mountain faster than I can. We need to meet up and join forces before... A loud rattle from behind them upslope to the left made them jump. Randy aimed, bow pulled taut, back straight and head high. Seth crouched low, two spears held crosswise in front of him. The thing zoomed behind them, turning them all the way around, slithering through the air like the lightning that had brought it. But no light accompanied it. If anything, the fog billowed even darker. Come on now, Robin's voice sounded loud in the fog. Ignore that thing. It's just trying to scare us. Let's get down to the others now. Stay close and put your feet where... Another zooming rattle and hiss passed above them, close overhead. They ducked. Just follow me. They unwillingly looked down at her. Robin crouched and hurried forward, her feet shuffling down the mountain in a winding path, feeling her way down the slope by instinct. Randy pushed Seth and Mac ahead of himself, taking the rear. When Mac went too slow, Randy's hand dropped onto his shoulder and guided him down, nearly pushing him off balance. The air shuddered. Another passed by the awful unknown thing, close enough to roil the fog. They smelled something sour and burnt in its wake. There was no more time now. It was on them. Robin pulled Seth to a nearby tree, an adolescent pine with a trunk no wider than a man's leg, its canopy disappearing above. Randy pushed Mac over to join them. They all stood with their backs to the trunk, weapons held ready. Silence. 
dead silence. Max started to tremble. Wyatt! Seth shouted in his loudest voice. It seemed to carry only twenty or thirty feet till the sound faded to nothing. Wyatt! His second attempt got no farther. Egad, he muttered. It's just trying to scare us, Robin said in a reasonable tone. It's doing a bloody good job, I'd say, Seth replied, his voice trembling at the end. Where is it? Randy asked. The canopy above them suddenly shook with such violence they were pelted with pine cones and showered with needles. An unbearable hiss and rattle sounded right over their heads. Mac yelled. He ducked and bolted downhill, stumbling and sliding down the slope, crashing into brush and kicking painfully into outcroppings of stone. Seth fled past him, a look of sheer terror on his face, his feet a blur on the uneven slope. He fell heavily, lost a spear, tumbled, and clumsily regained his feet. Mac whimpered, each breath forced from him with every hard landing, the hammer forgotten in his hand. He needed to run faster. His life depended on it. If he was slower than Seth, that meant he was in back. He was the last one. He was the first victim for the monster behind him. Mac fell off a granite boulder as tall as a house. He hurtled through the fog, arms windmilling, a shout of surprise splitting the air, and landed in a tangle of manzanita. It broke his fall, but tore his clothes and scratched his skin like he'd been slashed by a hundred claws. Warm blood immediately ran down his arms and legs, but his flight instinct was still too strong for him to care. He kicked himself out of the brush, hearing nothing but his own shuddering breath, too afraid to look back, and threw himself heedlessly downhill again. The slope steepened. Wait! Mac gasped, knowing his words were too weak to carry. Wait for me! The rattle and hiss grew behind him, unbearably loud, and something heavy clubbed him across the backpack from behind. His head snapped back, and he tumbled sideways down the slope, landing on his hands, then his knee, then his feet, then his pack, then his hands again, the ground whipping by too fast. He finally landed heavily on his backpack, his body curled into a protective ball above it. He rolled to his feet and crouched under it like a turtle, hammer gone. He had no weapon now. He slowly realized the ground was nearly level here. He took a deep breath and his thoughts cleared. I'm finally off the mountain. Now all he had to do was find the others, assuming any of them still survived. Randy! Robin! He called. I'm here! If any of them made it, it's her. Images of her flickered through him and his heart quivered. You can't die. Ever. Not Robin. You're too alive to ever die. Mac! An old voice called out faintly from ahead. That you, boy? Ed, Mac answered. I'm here, right here, Ed. Mac blundered forward, hands held out like he was blind. I'm coming, Mac. Ed's rushing form resolved out of the darkness and passed Mac to the left. Ed, Mac cried. Ed found him and gripped him by the shoulders. They stared at each other, panting. Ed looked like he'd seen a ghost. Come on, Mac pulled at him, trying to turn Ed around. Hurry, Ed resisted him. Not that way, it's behind me he said, trying to turn Mac around himself. No, it's behind me. It's everywhere. Ed stopped. Okay, where's the others? I don't know. We came racing off the mountain when the fog hit. It's so horrible. What is it? Witch, Ed said, spitting on the ground. No, this is something else, Mac said. Something worse. It flies, and it's like made of metal. Yeah, it's a witch. This is the kind of crap they do. Ed said, pulling them off at an angle from both of their last encounters. They can't come straight out and kill a man. They gotta play all these games with us first. But how does it fly? 
I don't think it does. I think it's fooling us. Me and Wyatt, we think this is all just smoke and mirrors. This fog can't hurt you. Those noises in the distance can't hurt you. Where is Wyatt? Ed shrugged. Lost him. It isn't all smoke and mirrors, Ed. It knocked me off the mountain, Max said, following him down a gentle slope through dead ferns. Well, a witch'll hardly touch you till it got you where it wants you. It scares you into a corner and gives you just one way you think you can turn. And then you step into it and the witch skewers you then and there. Eat you too if it ain't disturbed. Mac moaned in terror and Ed stopped. Hey, where's your hammer, Mac? I lost it. I fell. A lot. Now Mac looked at his bleeding arms and legs. He found bruises on hip and tailbone and ankle. Well, you can take my third knife. You gotta have something. I couldn't stand being out here unarmed myself. Ed unstrapped a long bowie knife in a sheath from his leg and handed it to Mac. He did feel marginally better with a knife in his hands. Ed did a double take. Hey, you know how to handle that thing okay? Mac held the big blade like a dinner knife straight up from his fist. Not really, he confessed. Pointy end in the bad guy, right? He joked. Yeah, but... You may want to think about reversing your grip for that. Here, like this. Ed pulled the knife from his hand and pointed the blade down, its tip toward Mac's elbow. There. You can do some serious stabbing that way. Or if you gotta slash at something, then turn it around again, but get that edge out in front of you. Slice across. Yeah, that's right. Those are your two basic grips, got it? Cut it open with the edge, and then drive it into the body with the point. Mac nodded, trying both grips, getting familiar with the blade. Hey, you notice? Listen, Ed, it's quiet again. Damn witch, off terrorizing somebody else, I reckon, Ed growled. Just gotta hope we don't come across the rest of them trolls. I think there are three left. Come on, let's head up this canyon. Our fallback's up yonder, and I bet that's where we'll find the others. He led Mac up the slope through a field of heather, the fog as dense as ever. The meadow ended in a line of dark trees. Ed skirted it to the right, looking for a way in. Mac followed in the heather, its soft branches brushing against his legs. He heard a rattle in the distance behind him. Ed, he said. I heard it. Let's keep going. We're safest in numbers. That's what a witch don't understand. Ed found a gap between two trees and stepped into the darkness of the woods. Come on now, get under here where we'll have as much trouble as we do getting through. Now the thing about which, Ed ducked under a fir tree's broad limb and stepped into a grove of saplings whose lowest branches looked brittle and dead. Only their bristling canopies showed green above. Mac followed him, weaving through the close-packed trunks over a carpet of loose brown fir cones. Witches are arrogant. I don't know what they hunt wherever they're from, but whatever it is must be dumb as dirt. Witches never expect their prey to think for themselves. So you just keep your head about you and don't fall into their traps, and you can beat a witch, despite what everyone says. Mac nodded, gripping the knife tight. The ground leveled and they entered a grove of white-trunked birches, their serrated leaves starting to yellow. Mac had birches in his backyard, and the sharp pang of nostalgia for them almost made him cry. The pool, his sisters playing in the backyard, their old fat spaniel Charlemagne barking from the deck, mom barbecuing, and dad drinking a beer in the shade. So much has been lost. 
In the birches they found Randy and Seth wandering like themselves. Seth yelled, Avast, Captain! We've wrecked upon the reef! and made lighthouse noises in the fog. The two boys looked as battered and bloody as Mac. You fellas okay? Ed asked, uncertain. We are MGM Grand, Seth said, holding his arm, an angry scrape across his forehead and cheek. Five stars, two thumbs up. Which way's the fallback, Ed? Randy asked. This way, Robin's voice answered in the fog, arrowing toward them in a straight line. She spared a half-smile as she glided through, unmarked by her descent from the mountain. Seth shook his head in consternation. Where did you even, like, come from? Are you sure you're on our team? He demanded of Robin, following her. The others fell in behind him. I'm on my own team, Robin answered, as if it was the most obvious thing in the world. I didn't sign no contract. Well, isn't that sweet? Seth answered. Stop it, you two, Randy said with uncharacteristic authority. We don't know what this thing's going to do to us next. Ed said it is a witch, Mac told them, and these are just illusions. But these aren't illusions. It hit me in the back up there so hard that I fell halfway down the... I know, Seth added. It totally swept my legs out. Hit me in the head so hard I saw stars, Randy spoke over both of them. Robin just shook her head and laughed at them. Where's Wyatt, Ed? She asked without looking back. Don't know. The fog rolled in and we set up a crossfire, but it got too thick to see, and after a minute, Wyatt stopped answering when I called. Then that wicked thing got me all turned around, and I had no idea how I ended up so far back. Me and Mac been walking almost a mile now. Wyatt, Robin called out. Then again a moment later, Wyatt, here, his voice echoed from the distance. With relief, they all walked toward him, across a mossy bank that led to a lower, dry floodplain strewn with river rocks and fallen logs. Wyatt resolved out of the shadows like a ghost, cradling his rifle. Oh, what a relief. Good job, everybody. Glad to see we all found each other. Anybody hit the witch? I think I winged it. You actually saw it? Ed asked. He laughed. Me, I was just shooting at noises and shadows. Where's Gus? Mac asked. I ain't seen him. Wyatt said. He the only one missing? Well, Seth added, apart from the witch. Yeah, Randy said. We haven't heard from it for a while, have we? Good, Mac said. No, Wyatt said. I gotta disagree with you there, Mac. That's generally not good. A witch only harasses you when you're not doing what it wants you to do. But as long as you're working yourself deeper into its trap, it's not gonna bother you at all. So it wanted to get us all together, Seth said. But why? And then they heard it again, the hiss and rattle in the distance. Okay, here's the thing, Wyatt said, urgency in his voice. It's coming for us now. It's going to hurt us into whatever position it thinks is best for it to kill us. So we got to fight out of that, right? What kills a witch? Water, Randy said. Right, and we got Beaver Pond Jr. right over that rise. I'm going to bet you a million dollars that the witch will hurt us up into that slot canyon to the left and do anything it can to keep us from heading over to the pond. But we got to do it. Another hiss and rattle swooped down on them from above, still distant but approaching fast. They retreated up a rocky slope. Now that Mac knew it was a witch hiding in the fog just trying to scare them, he could see the pattern in its attacks, how its noise pushed and harried them forward, up over the rocks, and toward the narrowing canyon. From within, a troll's hiss echoed up to them. Everyone stopped dead. Wyatt and Ed exchanged a hard look. How many trolls you reckon are left? Ed whispered. Wyatt held up two fingers. Ed shook his head and held up three. At least. 
The witch wants to run us right up against those trolls, Randy said. Right, Wyatt agreed. So this is where we make our break for the pond. Ready? The hissing, rattling, metallic scales passed dreadfully close beside them, over their right shoulders, pushing them leftward toward the enclosed canyon. Hold, hold, Wyatt ordered, waiting for it to pass. When it was clear, he shouted, Now run! Head to the pond! Don't stop! Go! Mac followed the others, head down, as they turned and raced for Beaver Pond Jr. A screech joined the hiss and rattle, a sound of fury, then the sound of two trolls behind them roaring in outrage. The witch zoomed overhead, and the shock of its gusting, fetid breath knocked Mac to the ground. Seth squawked as he fell into a mud puddle. Wyatt's alarmed shout got choked off ahead. Mac stood and exchanged a scared look with Seth. That had not sounded good. Mac hurried to where Ed was pulling Wyatt to his feet. Wyatt's eyes were wild. He turned and twisted in Ed's grasp. Ed just held him tight. Wyatt shook his head back and forth and sobbed, I can't, I can't, it got too close. He pushed on Ed's arms, trying to feel himself, spasms of revulsion racking his body. Mac looked at Randy, who stood appalled and unsure to see Wyatt so undone. Randy picked up Wyatt's rifle and handed it to him. Wyatt hugged it close. The man's dark face was a storm, like he'd lived through a hundred nightmares in the blink of an eye. Wyatt! Ed shook him. Wyatt sobbed and tried to push the old man away. Ed slapped Wyatt, a stinging blow across the mouth. Wyatt fell back, blinking. Ed hauled him to his feet and shook him. You need to man up! You hear me? We got these kids counting on us! Wyatt took a shuddering breath and dropped his face into his hands. Wyatt! Ed's voice was dangerous. You need me to slap you again? Wyatt lifted his head. He looked like he had aged ten years, but he had regained control of himself. No. No, I'm good, Ed. Come on, let's get over to the pond. What did it do to you? Seth asked. It, it tried to, to kiss me, Wyatt answered, his voice choked. They all shivered, too disgusted by the thought to find it funny. Ed clapped Wyatt's shoulder and nudged him forward, getting him moving. They topped a low rise and descended the far side, following Wyatt as he tried to get control of his shuddering sobs. On the far side, descending to what must be the pond behind, the witch stood, a hulking presence between them and the water. Ed cursed and lifted his rifle. He fired as Randy shot an arrow. Even Wyatt steadied himself and fired at the witch. It stood still, silent and unmoving. We are going, Wyatt told it in an outraged, ragged voice. To the water! It held up a hand. Before it could do anything else, Wyatt lifted his rifle and shot its hand. The hand twitched, the impact causing no apparent harm, but seeming to interrupt its incantation. It hissed and pulled a short, knobby staff from within its rags. It pointed the staff at Wyatt, uttering a string of unpronounceable words. He flinched, turning to the side. Randy called out, Wyatt, no! A rising shout emerged from the trees. Gus Hugel charged out of the fog like a linebacker. He tackled the witch, head down, legs parallel to the ground, crashing into it with all his might. The witch landed with a splash in a few inches of muddy water. Its screech was so high and piercing, Mac dropped to the ground and clapped his hands over his ears. Gus lay face down in the mud, the witch squirming beneath him, its screech skirling away into the wind. It collapsed into the mud and dissolved to nothing. The fog raggedly blew away, revealing blue sky above. Gus lay in the mud, rolling about, the witch nothing but streaks of black tar beneath him. 
He sat up, its remains streaming down his chest, his hands shaking. He snapped his gaze up to them. His face was even more harrowed than Wyatt's had been. His mouth worked, but no sound came out. Gus held out his hands, palms up and fingers splayed out, the tar running down his forearms and dripping from his elbows. Wyatt dropped to his knees before Gus and wrapped him in a bear hug, the two men sobbing like children in each other's arms. Thanks for listening to Woe Is Me, book one of The Horror Wars. Make sure to tune in next week to see if our heroes can survive. Yet another thrilling adventure on The Unuseful Hour.